Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Mad Mom Luke's. My name is Sim. Along with me is my co-host Summer and Irtiza Hassan. His first episode as a Mad Mom Luke host, he was the ori- one of the original founders of Al Maghrib Institute. You can read or learn more about him on our special episode we did with him called The Al Maghrib Story. Amazing dude. Welcome Irtiza. Thank you, Sam, Summer, and Omama. It's a pleasure to be with you guys tonight, and great to be back on the show. Well, Irtiza, you know the most about uh, Umema's story here. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Umema and uh, how you got to know her family? Sure. I, I would say I probably know the second most after Umema, but I, I don't know. I totally get what you're saying. I've so I've honestly I've known Umema uh, personally since we were kids. I would say. Uh, it's kind of a, a true story of where almost our whole families are best friends with everyone else in, in the other family. My mom and Omama's mom, um, just to give you a brief story, they, they are the first ones who met. It was in the mid-80s. Uh, Houston was a two-newspaper city back then, and our moms worked together at a place called the Houston Post. And uh, once they became good friends, they later introduced their husbands, our, our dads, and Omama's brother, real close friend of mine through childhood, elementary, middle, high school, college. Uh, Omama's sister, I, I know very well. I recently took a trip to Greece with her as part of a voluntary effort to support some of the uh, Syrian refugees in Greece, um, which she was the leader. That's Dr. Uzma Jaffrey. I've yeah. known Omama for years, not just as a family friend, but also she was my colleague at the Omogrub Institute office in Houston. That's the headquarters. Omama was not only involved in Al Maghrib's operations, but also in Iman Rush. So she was kind of on both sides of the fence. Uh, I know her husband, I know Ibrahim, I know her kids. So Omama is definitely someone who's a close family friend and someone I've known a long, long time. Well, welcome to the podcast, Omama. We're really excited to have you here um, to be able to talk to you one-on-one about this you know, uh, difficult situation that you're going through. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. So that's actually also where Umayma and I met back in the Houston Al Maghrib days where they used to have their headquarters. And I remember um, over the summer we were studying during Hedh and then there were um, just a group of girls who were like, hey, guess what? Al Maghrib's headquarters is here. And my jaw just dropped. I was like, what? There's a headquarters? <laughs> and we yeah, go in and mashallah, it was so amazing. I met um, Umayma and then all the different girls that worked there that summer. And it was immediately like this bonding um, moment for me, at least. And those friendships have really like lasted in my memory as like what a good friendship is like, you know, amongst uh, Muslim women. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's def- true. Alhamdulillah. Like uh, I met you just that summer. You were an out of town or you weren't even one of the Houston girls. No, but we, we kind of adopted you. So alhamdulillah. Yeah, I was so grateful for that. <laughs> I had no other like Muslim friends. I didn't even know like the different there were different ways to wrap a hijab. All I had was like the Almira that you put on, you know, the one piece. And I was like, what? You guys have to show me what's all this hijab wrapping about. Oh, yeah. That was back in the day where <laughs> we were all like hijab fobs. <laughs> yeah. So, Umema, walk us through what happened. I mean, some of our listeners may have heard your story through the uh, recent Muslim Matters article that you wrote explaining about your husband's detention and the story that uh, 
is surrounding it. But for the listeners who haven't heard, can you give us a, a brief uh, background of what actually transpired uh, leading up to the events? Sure. Um, I can't. I can't promise that it'll be be brief. So, um, I, I I published this article at Muslim Matters. Um, I think it was what early November. And um, what happened, it just is kind of, it just kind of, you know, snowballed after that. I really didn't expect that kind of uh, response from people. Alhamdulillah. We also had a petition that went with it uh, that we presented to the judge about releasing Ibrahim. So basically, that article was just a snippet of what's happened in our life in the past two years. In, 2000, in November 2015, you know, Ibrahim was arrested from our home in Dallas. Um Prior to that, you know, in, in 2011, we were raided by the FBI. And, you know, for unfortunately, there are many Muslim families who have experienced like something like this. It's very traumatic. Um, if they haven't experienced it firsthand, they've known other people who have. So you might have heard a story like this where, you know, the FBI just comes in the morning and they bang on your door. Um, it's, it's, it's a knock. It's not even a knock. It's not a, it's not a, a doorbell. It's literally somebody pounding so hard that you feel like your your you know your heart will just kind of burst out of your chest. It's very frightening. It's very traumatizing. Um, so early morning in 2011, uh, it was the winter of 2011 actually, and um, they came banging on our door, and um, I actually saw them from the window upstairs. And um, our 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 front door actually didn't have a peephole or a window or anything next to it. So my husband you know, just open the door without really checking to see who it was. And I just kind of flew down the stairs and threw myself up against the door and, and shut it again. And, uh, you know, they very calmly were like, you have to open the door. You have to let us in. I said, I don't have my hijab. And they're like, you're welcome to go put it on. So wow, I you had that like frame of mind, even in that moment to say, yeah. shut the door. Don't let these guys in here. Actually, you know what? It, the way it replays in my mind, it's in super slow motion. Like I can, I can recall myself. I don't even run. I don't remember running down the steps. I just remember being on the top and then suddenly being on the bottom. So I like, I literally flew down the steps and the front door is right at the bottom of the steps. And I just hurled my body up against that door. Um, and I remember screaming to my husband, like, no. And so imagine screaming no in slow motion <laughs> And saying, no, don't open the door. And then he had just opened the door. And they don't really wait for you to open the door completely. You know, they'll just mm -hmm. push on the other end, which is what they were doing. You know, they were pushing themselves against the, the opposite side of the door. So I went ahead and I threw myself against that door and, and shut it. Um, and, you know, your, your, your mind just kind of goes into, um, you know, fight or flight mode. So mine was, you know, I have to buy myself a few seconds and the first thing that came to my mind was I have to get my hijab on. That's and um, so I ran back up the stairs, weak need, you know, no blood in my body. And uh, with trembling hands, I, I put a hijab on. I had a six-month-old baby at that time just lying on the bed, you know, cooing early in the morning. Um, and then they came right upstairs. Um, and they, you know, they pronounced my name very properly, which never happened in my life. Right. You know, like, I mean, like finally like, someone can say my name yes. right, but you it's know you what? guys. Yeah. It, yeah. Was, it wasn't as exciting <laughs> as you would think. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're like, oh, my job free. And I was like, yeah, that's me. And so the very first thing they said, you know, they're like, we're not here to arrest anybody. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, a little bit of blood rushed back into my body. Uh, my knees weren't so, so weak. 
Um, and I was like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, we'll tell you once you, once you come on downstairs. So, so at I pick this up the baby. point, sorry, just to, no, just to interject a little bit, but, um, at this point, had you guys had any clue that something was going on none, or that they were suspicious none. of neighbors, of other people in the community even, or none, this is just out of nowhere. Out of the blue, out of wow. the blue, completely out of the blue. Um, you know, I mean, just in the just in the past, you know, my husband and I would read up on cases. You know, you hear of this Muslim man being arrested or yeah. that Muslim man being arrested. You know, things like that. I mean, Irtiza can even, you know, tell you about a, a guy or a couple of guys actually in Houston that we knew um, who were arrested. You know, so it's things like yeah. this you know about. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that's why I was, you know, initially I was very defensive with them. Actually, the mm-hmm. whole time they were raiding my house, I was very defensive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, when I came downstairs, the very first thing I told my husband was zip your lips. Like, don't you dare open your mouth. Um, cause you actually do have the right to remain silent. Yeah. Um, so, and then, you know, they split us up. He went and sat in the dining room and I sat on the couch and, um, we had a galley kitchen separating the two. So I, I could make direct eye contact with him at that, uh, at that dining table. And they were there for several hours. Oh my gosh. It was horrible. They, they opened up every drawer. They looked in every nook and cranny. They opened up cereal boxes and cookie jars and gallons of milk. Um, you name gallons it. Gallons of I milk? Mean, what, what oh, everything, they... everything, everything, everything. What are they like, looking they for in there? Fridge, like, you know, that's where we keep our explosives in yeah. the milk jugs. No, that, in, that, you know, that's where the uranium is that know, they were looking for in the, Iraq. That's where that expired milk is that'll kill you. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, and I actually had my phone and all I was doing the whole time was Show me the warrant, show me the warrant, show me the warrant, show me the warrant. Because, you know, so many times you've heard about, you know, those care workshops where they're Mm -hmm. like, you know, know your rights when you, if if the FBI shows up at your door, you actually have the right to refuse, uh, refuse uh, to allow them into your house. You know, they're not allowed to enter the house, but, you know, when you you have like 20, uh, when you have 20 agents pushing against the opposite side of the door, you got nothing else to do. Right. Um. So they, you know, they kept stalling. They're like, yeah, we'll show you the warrant. Yeah, yeah, it's coming. Yeah, yeah, it's coming. Um, you know, immediately I was like, I want to call a lawyer. The only lawyer we had at that time was an immigration lawyer because um, my husband, you know, we had gotten a lawyer when we got my husband's green card, you know, years ago. So called him, got an answering machine. And then I just started calling my dad. I was pretending I was calling a lawyer, but I was calling my dad and I was speaking to him in Urdu. And after the second phone call with him, like he understood immediately what I was saying. I was like, daddy, there are guys in my house and I need help. That's all I said in Urdu. And he understood. And then like maybe a minute later, they're like, we need your phone. And they took it. And then I, then I turned around and I saw this guy standing behind me and it was like this Desi uncle who was translating. And then he heard me on the phone and went and told them. So, um, that's when they took my phone away, but my dad was, you know, he was very efficient. He acted right away. My parents had some of my friends numbers, you know, in Toledo and they called everybody they possibly could. So within like maybe, I won't say right away, but like four hours later or something, they were able to get a lawyer who was just a a Muslim guy from the masjid. He was an immigration or he was actually, excuse me, he was a traffic, um, lawyer, whatever, you know, you deal with tickets or parking tickets, stuff like that. So he showed up at our door and we were able to leave with him while they continued searching our home. And then an hour and a half later, we showed back up at home. Then they gave us the warrant. And that warrant actually had a condition, had a stipulation that said they didn't have to present it to us 
until after they were done searching the house. Um, I didn't of even course. know those There's loopholes of for their like there misbehavior or they could like bypass laws. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, for these guys, special, special privileges, special laws, anything, you know, um, anything can be, anything can be done for in, in their favor. So that was our raid. Um, my husband was given a subpoena to show up in, in front of a grand jury within a week. And so we were scrambling to look for a lawyer and we found a lawyer, I think within 24 hours who was uh, a local guy in Toledo by the name of David Klukas. And um, he was able to actually set up two proffers. So they, they offers us proffers and a proffer is where actually the government speaks first and uh, like, they'll tell you what they know. And then they give you the opportunity to tell, tell them what you know. And they give you, um, it's not really immunity in the sense that, Oh, you'll never be charged or anything you say, uh, can and will be, won't be held against you. Um, it's just, it's basically the opportunity to hear their side of the story first. So, you know, my husband cooperated, we had our lawyer, we went to the FBI office in downtown, he sat with them, he answered their questions. Um, and after the second proffer, they said, you know, um, we'll catch up with you in another two weeks, you know, we'll sit down again for another meeting. We're like, sure, I want to pause you right there. I'm just wondering why you guys didn't contact care or somebody who's more um, trained to handle these type of cases? Um, because it's a federal case. Okay. It's, it wasn't a case about civil rights, um, and which is what care handles uh, for the most part. Okay. And um, and frankly, and, and this is something I know, obviously, in retrospect. Now, I mean, I can say we were very ignorant. Um, when you're put through such a traumatic experience, you know, any – I won't say all, all your common sense falls out of your head, but, you know, you're just shaken up and – we got that lawyer and he was like, you know, do not talk to the FBI. Do not, do not talk to them. And he told them, you know, my client will not speak with you. And it was then that they offered um, to sit down and, and proffer with Ibrahim. Um, so, I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't think care would have been able to help at this point. Um, so, you know, after that second proffer, they were like, you know, we'll, we'll touch base again in a couple of weeks and so at that point, I asked our lawyer, I was like, do we have to spend these couple of weeks in Toledo? Because we were really traumatized. I wanted to I wanted to get away for a little bit. So he was like, you know what? Go take a vacation down to Texas, take your time, and then fly back up in two weeks. And that's what we did. We went to Houston. We chilled with family. We came back in two weeks. We called the government. Our attorney called the government and said, hey, it's been two weeks. And they're like, um, you know, we're busy right now. We'll get back to you. So there was a, it was a really long gap of four years where we heard absolutely nothing from the government, nothing. My attorney, our attorney even contacted them every now and then. And he was like, Hey guys, you know, if nothing's happening, can we just drop this? And they're like, yeah, we're not really interested. The original prosecutor on the case went and got a job at this multimillion dollar firm. He was done with the case. It just seemed like they weren't interested anymore. They completely dropped the ball. They disappeared. That totally so, puts your you know, guard we, down. I'm sorry? That totally puts your guard down. You're like, okay, all right, everything's yeah, kind of like yeah. wrapped so, up. You know, we're okay now. Yeah, initially we were like, you know, treading on thin ice. We were like very careful. Um, we every, every time we, you know, our family was growing. At the time we were raided, I had three kids. We moved from one... Um, we moved from one townhouse to a slightly bigger townhouse within Toledo. And then a couple of years later, we moved to Michigan. Every time we moved, 
you know, we consulted our attorney, like, hey, can we move? And he's like, yeah, sure, live your life. So we, you know, very um, hesitantly, we moved to Michigan. We're like, okay, alhamdulillah, we lived there for two years in peace, no big deal. Um, And then, you know, my husband got a better job in Dallas. It was, you know, Dallas was an up and coming booming community. Yeah. I'm a Texan girl, so I wanted to move back to Texas, whether it was Houston, whether it was Dallas. I didn't care. It had to be Texas something. Yeah. So, you know, we moved to Dallas in August of 2015. Great school for the kids. Great job for the husband. You know, we were looking to buy a house. Everything was great. Alhamdulillah. You know, and then all of a sudden in November of 2015, we had only been in Dallas for three months when, you know, um, there was no doorbell. There was no pounding on the door. My husband opened the garage to put out the trash and like like half a dozen, a dozen men just charged right into the garage. And at that point, you know, um, the garage door was right by my master bedroom door. I had no hijab on and I just went outside. You know, at that point I was like, hijab was an afterthought. Um, And I went outside and I was like, give me that warrant. And they actually did this time. They actually handed me a warrant. And, wow. Um, so, yeah, he was arrested then. On what charges? I mean. So, um, you know what? I actually forgot to mention that when he got the subpoena in 2011 to stand in front of a grand jury, when we proffered with the government, they they went ahead and canceled that, that subpoena. They retracted it. And they're like, okay, you don't have to go in front of a grand jury. Basically, what happens when you stand in front of a grand jury, you're not allowed to have a defense lawyer, you're not allowed to have any witnesses, nothing. It's a jury, it's a judge, it's a prosecution, and the defendant. And um, there's a saying in the legal world that you can um, you can charge, you can indict a ham sandwich. You know, you can indict anybody on anything. Right. So in 2011, basically, Ibrahim was guaranteed of being charged. So the fact that they retracted that subpoena, you know, we were able to um, you know, we had a sigh of relief. So fast forward to 2015, when they gave us that warrant, then I saw, you know, uh, it was a 72 page, um, indictment. Um, and he was charged with conspiracy to, um, um, conspiracy to provide material support to terrorists. Um, uh, two of those charges are actually kind of the same. Uh, conspiracy to obstruct justice, conspiracy to um, uh, commit bank fraud. So there are four charges like that. Um, um, so at that time, you know, they arrested him. They took him to the county jail. He was to be arraigned in front of a judge in, in, in Dallas. And we attended that. And, um, you know, we were really naive. We were like, okay, so so when does he get to come home? Um, and they gave him a public defender who was like, you know what, this case is based out of Toledo and it's best that he gets transferred when he gets transferred by, by back to Toledo, I should say, um, is when you guys should, you know, petition for bond because the judge, this Dallas judge who sees Ibrahim as, you know, a foreigner to Dallas basically, um, is not going to give him bond. So then we waited a whole month while Ibrahim was extradited back to Toledo. And he was charged along with three other guys. Uh, one of them was his brother. And uh, the other two guys are also another set of brothers. So it's two sets of brothers, basically. Um, and so both, all four guys were basically held at the county jail in Toledo. Um, well, I don't know how. Go ahead. Well, uh, tell us a little bit more about Ibrahim himself. Like, what kind of person is he? Has he ever 
been involved with anything that would cause suspicion, the skeptic uh, listener of ours would uh, message us after the show saying, well, the, you know, they didn't obviously pick his name out of a hat. He must have done something or said something that uh, irked them and, um, you know, th- that caused them to look more at him. Yeah, I mean, naturally, you know, that is, the, you know, a person's first uh, the initial reaction is like, oh, did he actually do it? Like, what happened? And we might do that, too, when we read the news about something. So Ibrahim is, you know, he has zero criminal history. Um, he became um, um, a permanent resident of the U.S. Um, in, was it 2007? You know, after we got married, we applied for his green card. In 2014, we were applying for his citizenship. And we waited that long because when we were rated in 2011, you know, we were really nervous and we weren't sure whether or not to apply for his citizenship only because they do a they do a background check. Right. They do the FBI background check. They take your fingerprints. And we were like, you know, for sure it's going to come back uh, with something. But when we applied for that citizenship, that background check came back completely clear because he was never charged with anything until 2015. He has no criminal history. He was always um, a, a very. So, so January, just to be clear, he, he is a United, uh, U.S. citizen. Actually, what happened, he was arrested uh, in November 2015. And just maybe the following Monday, we got the letter in the mail. I got the letter in the mail from, from Homeland Security saying he passed his background check. We're waiting for his interview. Basically, we were just like two steps away from his citizenship being mm-hmm. finalized. Wow. And so whether or not that was a coincidence, you know, we don't know. You know, did they arrest him deliberately before he actually became a citizen? And if so, what does that prove? Like, what? how does that strengthen their case? You know, is it just to prove that he's an immigrant coming in? You know, this is how, why, this is why we should have a travel ban. Uh, This is why we shouldn't let immigrants in because they're about to, you know, cause terror in our country. Is that why they did that? Or was it just pure coincidence? You know, I mean, we can I ask myself that question all the time. I really don't know why um, it happened when it happened. Um, I think that's such um, a like, sorry, sorry, I think that's such a just a prevalent mindset, right? Especially in America, because nationalism is so strong. And if you say I'm a human being that actually has less weight than if you say I'm an American. You know, whenever you have that blue passport or whatever, you say, yeah, I'm a U.S. citizen immediately like. Americans will give you more respect or and I don't know legally how much weight that holds but um the predominant culture is just well if you're American you're one of us and if you're not you're one of them right um exactly so exactly. to other him you're right it may just sound better for their case to keep him as an other you know exactly. uh, j- just to continue off of what you were saying you were saying that you know he, he's a compassionate guy you never done anything wrong in his life but what uh, what organizations was he working for? A lot of times people who are working for Islamic organizations, um, they're usually targeted by the FBI for some kind of um, impropriety involving money, um, money apparently going through back channels to mm-hmm. uh, some kind of uh, shady organization overseas. So uh, tell us a little bit about what, what he's what he was involved with before marriage or even leading up to it. So before marriage, he only ever just kind of volunteered at his um, masjid, you know, on the Dawa scene, not part of any official organization, just maybe his local MSA. After marriage, same thing. He was just involved in the masjid. He would lead Tarawih at the masjid. Um, he would teach little kids Quran. Um, 
you know, he was just that, he was that generous guy that everybody knew. Um, you know, this is one of the questions actually that our attorney asked me when I took the stand as a, as a witness at our first bond hearing in 2016, he asked what organizations was your husband part of? He was part of zero. He was part of like, he's an engineer. My husband is a civil engineer. Um, and he did his master's in Urbana-Champaign. Um, so he was part of some, you know, National Structural Engineers Association of America, the, like one of those types of organizations. Right. And that is it. You know, everything else was just like, oh, somebody in the community needs help, just help them. You know, somebody needs a new car. Okay, let's just get them a new car. Somebody needs a ride in the middle of the night. You know, he was that type of guy. You know, he was a guy who would mow the neighbor's lawn. Um, you know, when they weren't looking just because he knew how busy they were or he, he noticed they were busy. So it's, you know, help a neighbor, you know, take somebody to the airport in the middle of the night, you know, um, because they needed, you know, they had a, like a 5am flight. It was just, you know, normal stuff that we do every day to help each other. Yeah. And that was my husband. I think in that's that like, sorry, I just think that's like one of the most chilling aspects of the story of your story is that. You know, someone who is so kind and so generous and going above and beyond to always be helpful to their neighbors. That's what we keep hearing, right? As Muslim Americans, that's what we need to do to be accepted. That's what we need to do to show people that we're not dangerous. We're not a threat. We're not, you know, terrorists. And yet here, you know, amazing people like your husband who are doing that, who are, you know, walking the walk and talking the talk. And yet those are also the same people that are, you know, being arrested and held on these, you know, frivolous charges. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you read, if you have the time and the energy to read the 72 page indictment, you'll, I mean, you'll not, you will not get a sense of Ibrahim's personality, right? They, 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 it's fear mongering, Islamophobia. It's like, oh my God, he was this kind of terrorist. He said these types of things. Um, you know, the, in the indictment, even mentions that he listens to jihadi nashids. And the one nasheed they mentioned was Ghuraba. Right? Oh my God. Ghuraba is a nasheed that's been Everyone listens to that nasheed. Right. And people know it. And it's like, really? Yeah. Like, th- that makes him a terrorist because he listened to Ghuraba. So do I, man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it was. Uh, well, well, people... one name, one name that I keep on throwing out there on, at least in the news articles and, uh, things that are, um, anything pertaining to your husband, uh, is Anwar Olaki's name. And that yeah. that he was somehow financially connected to him. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, the four of the four charges I mentioned was conspiracy to provide material support to terrorists. So when Ibrahim got arrested, like I said, there were three other guys who got arrested. One of them being his brother. And his brother, um, in July 2017, just this past July, pled guilty, and he was sentenced to 27 and a half years. Um, when these guys were first arrested, you know, there was a lot of pressure from the prosecution to take a plea deal, take a plea deal, take a plea deal. Cause that's how cases in America work. You know, it's like a assembly line. Um, you know, you show up in court, you plea, you know, you kick this guy out and you, you know, next defendant comes in. So, you know, 97% of these cases in the, in the entire justice system plead out. So when neither, none of these four guys were pleading out, you know, the government gets a little nervous, like, okay, now we actually have to come up, you know, the burden of proof is on them, they have to come up with the evidence, and they have to take this to trial, and they have to spend millions of dollars on trial. And they have to, you know, defend their costs and all that. So because nobody's playing out, they entrapped my brother in law in the jail in Toledo. 
And they supposedly recorded him saying all sorts of crazy things. One of was that he was attempting to murder the federal judge sitting on the case. Do you mean like they had his roommate pretend to like ask? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Like straight from Hollywood type stuff. Yeah. It was this felon who was in and out of jail all the time. Like if you saw his record, it would be like a mile long. And our attorney's like, oh, man, I represented this guy like 10 years ago. And then my colleague represented him eight years ago. He's in and out and in and out of prison. So for this guy, he's like, ooh, let me, you know, go ahead and wear some recording devices, record this guy or, you know, um, you know, reel him into saying certain things, record it so I can get a lesser sentence, which he did. Um, so when that entrapment case happened, you know, it was basically like, OK, you're charged with attempted murder of a federal judge. That's life in prison. So this guy literally is not looking at uh, a freedom again. So he did take that plea deal. And so he's serving 27 and a half years. So this brother is actually, you know, kind of, I don't want to say the head honcho. um, Because when you think of a head honcho, if you think of a leader, you think of somebody intelligent. (laughs) Um, I won't say that's his brother. You know, he got caught up. Um, in, in some stupid business schemes. Basically, he got hustled out of thousands of dollars um, where he thought he was investing in a business, um, where he thought he was uh, donating um, recording, uh, recording, um, I guess you could say, um, equipment. equipment to send to Anwar Aulaki. And at that time, and this is, this case is like old, 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 old. Okay, we're talking 2008. 2009. And if if you know anything about Anwar Aulaki, he wasn't designated a terrorist until until 2010. So Anwar Aulaki gets released from Yemeni prison and, you know, his supporters are like, oh, great, you know, alhamdulillah, he's out of prison, uh, out of Yemen, um, let's support him. And so his brother was one guy who was like, okay, you know, I want to help the sheikh. And he tried to collect money. That's where the other two guys come in where supposedly they were like, okay, you know, we'll help you, um, you know, buy some recording equipment because, you know, Anwar Oliki was famous for his Sira lectures. Right. Um, you know, the Medina series and the, the Mecca series, you know, those were really popular. Um, and it was at that point where my husband's like, well, you know what? I'm not, I'm not contributing. He's like, I'm not sure exactly what you're buying and I'm not sure exactly where this money's going. I'm not helping. I'm, I'm not contributing. And that's in the indictment where my husband's like, I want nothing to do with this. And that is literally his entire role in all of this. So um, when when your when his brother was entrapped in prison, did he say anything to implicate uh your husband? No. No. He didn't implicate anybody else. Okay. So so they have literally nothing on, on your husband and he's being held on on these charges of um, material uh, uh, support conspiracy to provide material support to terrorists right obstruction of justice obstruction of justice is very broad it could be anything you know it could be like you didn't gosh a one lawyer told us that obstruction of justice be, can be you didn't open the front door when they banged on your front door right. even though you had the right to keep that door shut if you didn't open that door that's obstruction of justice oh, um so what Ibrahim did to get that charge on the Hanum, really, we don't know. We're so just they, like, they, not, they don't have to provide everybody. explanations behind each of these charges? No, because if you read the indictment, all they're worried about is the terrorism, 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 right? That's right. how 
you know, they win over a jury. Is, is fear-mongering, is Islamophobia. Um, they don't really need to provide anything. When, when the Patriot Act, you know, went into effect and right after 9-11, you know, signed by George Bush, signed by Dick Cheney, the, the Patriot Act basically gave them free reign to spy on people, to arrest people, to detain people um, without, without any, any jurisdiction. It was literally a green light for them to do anything they possibly want, which, you know, what Summer said initially was, oh, they have loopholes. Yeah, there are tons of them because they're allowed to have these certain privileges, like I said before. That's what the Patriot Act does. So you can charge a guy with anything. And if you put the word terrorism or terrorists on there, like, that's that's all they need. So, you know, going back to, to the charges, you know, my brother-in-law, you know, he's he's the guy they really want him to plead. You know, they really want him to cooperate with them, which means... You co- cooperate with us, we give you a better deal, and you testify against the three other guys. And they're obviously they're going to all four guys offering this deal, and nobody's going to say anything against the other guy because they're like, nothing happened. You know, my brother-in-law got hustled. Whatever money he thought he was he was uh, donating for some recording equipment was actually stolen by the guy who pretended to know Oleki. Is, um, are there bank just, records a, of him like that show okay look this guy gave me a check for two thousand dollars and i basically put it in my own bank account and yeah yeah there was a hustler that you know who stole the money and um you know there were two guys where you know they each got a cut and you know the money went nowhere but in their pockets um but that's enough you know it's it's and you know what what the government does it's something called uh inference stacking they're not allowed to inference that. They're not allowed to infer the fact that these guys intended to give Oloki money and Oloki intend or, um, in, you know, intended to use it for whatever, you know, horrible things or whatever acts of terror that he, he was planning on. Um, whether or not anything took place or not, it's the intention. So the brother intended to give it to Oloki and Oloki intended to, you know, blow something up. That's all that matters. No act of terror was committed. No crime was committed. No weapons were purchased. No weapons were exchanged. Um, no money actually got to Oleki. It, it just doesn't matter. It's the fact that, oh, it could have happened. So thus we must lock this, lock these guys up for life. That's you know, all it is. And it speaks to a bigger question of who is allowed to disagree with what the government is doing anymore. You know, if at any stage you can't even think wow, the government shouldn't be doing this, then that means that you had an intention to block the government, right? Mm. And like, then what? Then you could also be uh, arrested for thinking of having this intention, right? Yeah. yeah, Well, I mean, there are so many Americans out there that disagree with America's foreign policy, that disagree with the way they handle so many things. And now with Trump, just everything, right? There's millions of Americans, more than half the country disagrees with him. But if anyone has the intention to mm-hmm. do anything against it, then that that's what makes them, you know, terrorists. It's just becoming yeah, so. I mean, I mean, if you think back to, um, you know, like the, the and what I wrote in the Muslim Matters article is like they they prey on people who are either you know have some sort of mental illness, who are loners. They will never by themselves think of any sort of plan 
you know, any sort of, um, you know, a plan to hurt people or cause any sort of terror. But this informant comes in, plants his idea, plants the entire scheme up to the last minute because they know no one's going to get hurt. And bam, they arrest this guy. Oh, he intended to blow this up or he intended to hurt these people or he intended to blah, blah, blah. And well, nothing I mean, happens. I'll- what happens? He ends up in life in prison. That's a max, you know, max yeah. security prison. And it's ridiculous because I feel like it's just a plot to show, look how efficient we are. We're catching terrorists That's left and exactly right. exactly what it is. And it's, continue it's, it's, this fear. Hey, you never know. Even the nice guy mowing your lawn could be, you know, so never trust a Muslim. And I feel, feel like that yeah. building of antitrust has culminated so much. And it wasn't even that bad when 9-11 first happened. But now it's been like 16 years of that fear mongering, of that Islamophobia. Yeah. I mean, they have to these... keep it up, right? Right. They have to keep selling the product, right? You right. know, back 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 in World War Two, you know, it was it was the Japanese put them in German camps. Japanese Americans, they're the they're the enemy. Japanese Japanese, and then you know, then um, in the sixties, it was the Red Scare, right? It was Russia, it was right. communists. Yeah. You know, now yeah. modern day, it's the Muslims. Um, that they have to keep, they have to make excuses for why they're why why they're still in the Middle East bombing countries. Why we're spelling, you know, how much are we eight trillion dollars in debt? Probably more now. Yeah. Um, why are we spending trillions of dollars in the military? We still have to defend that. Why are we still sending our men over there to, to die? You know, in a war that it's just going on for, like you said, sixteen years. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, uh, you have to defend that. You have to keep selling the product. Umayma, just getting back to uh, uh, your husband Ibrahim. Um, has there any, been any, uh, evidence that he, uh, you know, was a listener or a fan of any sort of unworldly? Is this, do you think this might be some kind of retribution for, um, him being even, you know, a supporter of his in the smallest amount? So when we had the bond hearing in 2016, you know, that's, that's something the, the government cross-examined me on. Did you guys listen to unworldly? Yeah, we did. Can you name? Can you tell me how many people in the Muslim world did not listen to Oleki back then? Tens of thousands, of, if not hundreds of, of thousands. Every and they're like, yeah. you know, one of the questions they ask: How do you get a hold of the CDs? They're they're readily available. <laughs> I was you know, in Podunk, online, Mississippi. You go to conferences, and I listened to. We used to go to Isna. We used to go to Ikna. We used to everywhere. buy CDs everywhere. Back when CDs, you know, you know, were not obsolete like they are now. Right. Yeah. But you know, we used to buy these CD sets. So I was like, yeah, you know, it was a big deal. We used to buy CD sets by by Oleki because he was a great storyteller. He was captivating. And, you know, yeah, he reached a point where he kind of, you know, became a radical and started saying weird things where all of us were kind of like raising an eyebrow and saying, okay, this is kind of like, what is he saying? Like, You know, Rayma? Umayma, uh, I just uh, remembered my wife, uh, you know, she listens to Anwar Olakin, but she can't even pronounce his name right back then. You know, it was Anwar Al-Unkali. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she listened to it because he's a great storyteller of the, of the Prophet's stories, you know, yeah. or the stories of the Prophet's series that he did. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. You were saying. Yeah, I mean, and that's what I told the prosecution. I was like, you know. He was very popular in the Muslim world. I mean, even after 9-11, didn't they do a special on him? Um, I don't know what news, what news channel, maybe 2020 or primetime or whatever it was. They interviewed him where, you know, he condemned, you know, any sort of uh, acts of terror. And so, you know, he was mainstream at one point. When he radicalized, you know, that was, um, that was 2010. So any investigation that's going on with my husband's case is way before he became you know, he came, he showed up on the radar. 
It's and so, so now we question the fact like, okay, you know, we listened to him back then. We didn't listen to him around 2010, 2011 when we got raided. What's your beef now? But it's just the fact like, you know, you did at one point, you could have done something. You know, it's the, yeah. it's the same story. It's the same narrative over and over again. And now that Aloki is not even here anymore, you know, he was killed. And well, is this it's a justification? Still, right? You know, you, you, you kill a guy, you kill a U.S. citizen yeah. without trial, yeah. you know, without his day in court, which is illegal. And his son. And his son. And Who had now, nothing you know, to do with daughter. him. I mean. 16. Yeah. And now, you know, are you trying to justify killing him? Like saying, oh, look, he, he, he trained these terrorists. And he this did was this. his you network. Know, just like the same thing with the Fort Hood guy. Yeah. The same thing with the underwear bomber on the, on the plane. Yeah. Um, they, they try to, they attempt to tie both of these guys into our case. Cause they're like, look, they were radicalized by Oliki. So, so were these guys. And it's just, you know, it's it's a very weak narrative. It's it's very flaky, um, you know, evidence. And it's just, what are you going to do? All they're doing is selling, you know, Islamophobia. That's literally what their product is. You know, it also happened in our community where, I mean, in this Chicago suburbs, it's such a, there's such a dense Muslim population. You always have the FBI sniffing around. And right around 2011, um, the FBI came knocking at actually my in-laws house and they were looking for my husband we had just recently moved out um to our a, a townhouse and they were like where is he and my father-in-law brought them over to our townhouse and you know um this was like when we had first moved in we didn't even buy any this is furniture. right after this is right after the underwear bomber right after the underwear bomber and this is after oh lucky had been killed this was like yeah. the day after or something and they wanted to come into our house, but literally we had no furniture. So my father-in-law's like, yeah, you know, the, the the kids just moved in. How about we take him back to my house and we talk to him there? My father-in-law, subhanAllah, he was really intelligent. He kind of knows that they're going to be looking at everything at our house. So he's like, okay, let's just take him back to our house and question him there. And my heart just dropped. I was like, oh, my God, where are they taking him? What are they doing? And um, we were actually leaving that same day for my sister's wedding in Mississippi. So when they came in, they see an empty apartment and like three suitcases all open with everything that we have in there. And we're like on our way out. I'm frantic. Like, don't take him away. We have to leave. We have to go to my sister's wedding. And um, they they took him. And at this point, like it was so early that... He hadn't looked at his phone. I hadn't really seen what was going on in the news, but I, I kept checking my phone. Like, is something going on? Like, why are they here all of a sudden? And I saw that Anurul Oliki had just been killed. And that's what the primary reason was for questioning him. They were like, well, you know, we just wanted to see what's the pulse on the community. How are people feeling? And he's like, about what <laughs> you know he didn't even know yeah he didn't they, even they know really think that we that, care yeah they really think we care like um i mean i'm not gonna say somebody getting murdered is not something to care about but it's just it's not a topic of conversation like one thing they asked me on the stand was did you guys talk about it at the dinner table you know as a family did you talk about oloki and i was like excuse me why would i do that and they were like you know don't you guys talk about things? I was like, no, we got three kids, man. We got better things to talk about. Why are we going to sit here talking about, you know, just an email? Like, it's Between three just kids, really, you think we're going to talk about Anurul Olaki? My kids don't even like, let me talk about anything. 
you, you know, know that's like somebody in modern saying you know modern day saying oh did you talk about like this you know conspiracy with this imam or this conspiracy with this you know whatever happened in the news no we don't nowadays yeah okay we might be like okay we're talking about <laughs> yeah, the i mean look these guys are so clueless and i'm sure they're they're listening that you know they're i see a lot of downloads from virginia and stuff so um i'm sure they're listening and if you guys are listening out there you guys gotta understand you're really clueless about our community and I'm watching this show called Mindhunter on uh, Netflix, and it's about a show that has FBI agents who are learning about serial killers when very little known about them, and there was no profile built about them. And these guys aren't even scratching the surface the surface about understanding the the problems or where some of these uh, terrorists are coming from, and they're trying to you know pin the blame on average Muslims who are you know just um, normal people who are contributing members of society and, you know, good people like your your husband, Ibrahim. You know, uh, as I'm listening to me, the I agree with what Omama said about, you know, they're, they're clueless in terms of what they think our dinner table conversation or our day-to-day conversation is. But the other thing that got me about Ibrahim was that he was just, you know, a normal guy. There's an Ibrahim in every community. Um, Ibrahim... You know, and I've I, I've met him and interacted with him many times over the years, but he's not the guy in the masjid or the community that's the loudest guy or necessarily the guy that, uh, you know, in a very large gathering, he'd be the first guy you'd remember or the first guy who'd stick out. But he was the guy who was active in his masjid. You know, you'd see him for salah. You'd see him come by. Uh, anytime there was a visiting scholar, visiting guest, they'd know him. You know, he knew the brothers who were involved in stuff, who were active uh, in classes, in teaching, and in, in conferences. And, um, yeah, he was just a good brother. You have folks like that in Chicago, Houston, Dallas, that, you know, the community's happy to have in their community. And I feel like one thing that affected the community, besides affecting Omama's family personally, is people just turned around and they really scratched their heads where it was like, you know, they're going after guys like this. You know, it's uh, where don't get me wrong. And I, I don't mean to sound insensitive, but there may be people over the years where, you know, they got taken in or they got taken in for questioning or they got even, even locked up for something where you're like, okay, you know, you can kind of understand that one. You can kind of see, you know, what might've happened there. I'm not saying anyone, anyone deserves to be, locked up, but I'm saying there, there's some cases where you could say, okay, I kind of see where that happened to that brother or that sister or something like that, but with Ibrahim, it was more of a shocker because um, everybody who knew him and kind of knew his demeanor and personality um, just knew that, you know, he you know he was anything but uh, a threat or, or someone who wished harm for the community or harm for, uh, you know, the government or the country. Umema, how's he, how's he doing in prison right now? Um, how's he holding up? Um, you know, it's, it's not easy. Two years. Uh, it was two years just this past November and, you know, his four kids are growing up without him. Um, he's in a county jail where other inmates tell him that, you know, this is actually a hard time. You know, federal prison, you get movement, you get computers, you get to walk around, you get to go outside. County jail, you're literally in a, in a concrete block, no windows, no sunlight, no, no fresh air, anything just, you know, 24 hours a day. Um, and that's, you know, that's the least of his worries, you know, what, how he sleeps or what he eats is the least of his worries. It's just, you know, being away from his family, which is very hard, you know, and my mother-in-law who's God, 70, older than 75 years old. 
and both her sons are locked up. You know, the fact that her older son was sentenced, we haven't even told her. We were just like, you know, yeah, we still don't know what's going to go, what happened with him. Because, you know, if she found out that her oldest son got 27 and a half years, she's going to have a heart attack. Oh, my gosh. Um, And so with Ibrahim, you know, it's just, you know, I told her we had our third bond motion um, last month in November. It's been a month and a half and the judge still has not ruled on it. So every day she's like, is there a ruling yet? Is there a ruling yet? Is there a ruling yet? Every day the children are like, is Baba coming home yet? Is Baba coming home yet? You said Baba might come home. You know, and I did say that. I was like, look, we're going to this. And I actually took three of my my four kids. I left the toddler at home. I took three of my older kids to the bond hearing this time. So the judge gets to see them, you know, that these are the, these are the little human beings that he's missing out on. And they are literally the only ones that can make him smile. So instead of sulking on that defense table, he was smiling because he kept turning around looking at his children. Oh, um, it's 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 hard, you know. I have a four-year-old. Our our youngest is four. He wasn't even two when Baba was arrested. So he's he's you know half his life. You know, Baba's not here, and he's young. How much do you expect him to remember? But you know, he was not feeling well today. We're traveling actually right now. He wasn't feeling well, and all he's crying. He's like, "I want Baba. I want Baba." And, you know, part of me is like, how does he even remember? But my heart, you know, I'm, okay. this immense feel of, you know, feeling of relief that, okay, alhamdulillah, he remembers his father or he knows some sort of concept of a father. Um, so it's, it's hard. Well, you know, it's hard I, for the I can tell you, like, we're dad. tearing up listening to you over here. I mean, this, I mean, how, how are you holding up? What can we do as a, as a community for you uh, to help you out in any way possible? Uh, I know our our fan base, uh, our listener base is very passionate, and they're always looking to find a, a cause that the Mad Mom looks is behind. And uh, I know they'll be right behind you in in, in anything you need. So please, uh, please tell us what what we can do for you right now. You know, um, what you can do for me immediately is you know on Change dot org we have that petition. Keep signing that petition. Keep sharing that petition. Um, we have a, a Facebook page called Free Ibrahim Now. Keep liking that page. Keep sharing our posts. Keep post something on there, you know, encouraging. Um, the number one thing you can do is keep talking about Ibrahim and keep talking about guys like Ibrahim who are also detained, who have also been sentenced, who have disappeared, who people have forgotten about. You know, there's Ali Tamimi, there's Abu Ali. Um, you know, there's how many more guys are there in Gitmo, man? Yeah. Um, you know, we have to keep these things in conversation. There was just... Recently, just um, two days ago, two days ago, I was I was in Maryland and I was going to Washington, D.C. to attend the trial of a guy named Nick Young, who was a police officer in Virginia for 13 years. He converted he converted to Islam. As soon as he converted to Islam, they entrap him in a case and he just got convicted. It was a three day trial. This trial should have been like three, four weeks long. It ended in three days. The jury barely deliberated before they came back and they convicted him. And this, I mean, this mm-hmm. this guy is like 30 years old. Yeah. I mean, this still happens oh. in our country. And it's 2017. It's 16 years after 2011, 2011. I mean, excuse me, 9-11 after 2001. Why is Gitmo still open? Why are Muslim men like these still getting arrested? Why are they still being detained? Why is, why is there no due process, violation of due process over and over again? What more can you do? You can repeal the Patriot Act. Contact your state representatives, contact your senators, your congressmen, and say repeal this Patriot Act that gives the, the, the government free reign 
to basically abuse any man, any woman they suspect of of anything. You can even like sneeze and they'll be like, oh, he meant to do something. Alhamdulillah. Oh no, you're Hamakallah. Yeah, Oh my gosh, they're all like chanting about God. It is. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that the the fear around Muslims has built these walls so high. It makes you wonder mm-hmm. how how um, difficult it's going to be to overcome these obstacles where there's so much prejudice. Especially yeah, especially in the with legal the current administration. Like, yeah, I mean yeah, they're not like even that. subtle about it, right? Like in the Obama years, it was at least quiet and like back doors and stuff. But now it's mm-hmm. right in your face. Now it's like right in your face. Yeah, as soon as you know, yeah. as soon as Trump was voted in. You know, we all went through those those stages of, of grieving where we were just shocked and then we were sad and then we were angry and then we finally had acceptance, you know? Mm-hmm. So when I went to bed that night, I was shocked. When I woke up in the morning and my kids were like, oh, who won? Because, you know, in school, in fourth, fifth grade, yeah. they're learning about the election. And I cried. I didn't expect to cry, but I cried that Trump won because in my head, I'm like, oh, my God, my husband has to go to trial in this when this man is president. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. What's going to happen climate. to my husband and the yeah. other other three men? You know, yeah, his brother got sentenced. But is there any way we can we can um, appeal that? Is there any way we can get that overturned? What about the two other innocent men? You know, they have ch- children. They have three, four kids. Yeah. What, what are we supposed to do? Like, we have to defend these men. And that's what our community needs to do is these men like Ibrahim and men like the other uh, defendants and men like Nick Young and Tariq Mahanna and Abu Ali, Ali Tamimi, like I mentioned before, have to still be the topic of conversation. Do you yeah. feel like the community them. has come together? Or do you feel like there's fear in the community itself to say, hey, if we try to stand up for these men, maybe we'll get entrapped with them yeah. or we'll get looped in? lassoed into yeah i mean a lot of people have that fear um you know um i know earth is like you know remember in the college days like if if somebody got picked up everybody was just kind of like on edge just like okay you know just you know put your head down and keep going but we can't do that like i said it's 2017 and we're raising children and what what world are my children are your children inheriting if we don't stand up to injustices like this what is left for them the justice system is more about, you know, persecution. It's not about prosecution. And we have to turn that around. 97% of cases get pled out because guys are just too afraid. They're like, oh, man, I'm looking at life in prison. Um, so I got I to plea. And when you plea out, you, 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 you have to say, you have to sign papers that say, I am guilty. Yeah. So, you know, the wider community thinks that. They think, oh, well, he pled, so he must be guilty. It's like, no, they put you in such a desperate situation. If you're looking at life in prison, like my brother-in-law, to have any semblance to ever, ever, you know, see his children again, he's going to take that plea deal. 27 years, he still has a chance to see his children. Not his mother, unfortunately. She's, I mean, Allah obviously, but, you know, she's very old. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's something we have to, continuously talk about what about uh, your local community and their inter- interactions with you have uh, um alhamdulillah you know our local co- you know i always since the day i got married and moved to toledo i hated toledo um it was you know i'm i'm from big city houston and moving to little itty bitty town toledo was really was really different for me and i never liked it and so when i moved to dallas um i saw this big city and it was just like okay alhamdulillah i'm back in texas i'm back at home I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd end up back in Toledo. 
you know, I remember when I was donating all our winter coats and our snow boots, I was like, yes, I will never need these again. Uh-huh. I feel yeah. like, I feel like Allah was like, uh-uh. <laughs> you know, shouldn't have said that. Um, when I moved back to Toledo, like subhanAllah, like Ibrahim was such a pillar of that community, always helping people, always smiling in people's faces that everybody rallied again, like behind us. Uh, we had so much support and for every bond hearing we've had, and we've had like three motions for bond. People have submitted, you know, I've collected 20, 30 letters of support and in, in all those letters of support. And I can tell you, honestly, in every single one, there's one common theme. And that is Ibrahim Muhammad would always have like this really cheesy, toothy smile. You would never see Ibrahim unless he had a smile on his face. That everybody has written that in their letters of support. Everybody, everywhere I go, they're wanting to buy me food or, you know, take care of my children. They love my children. They're just very supportive. And, you know, we've packed the courtroom, you know, anytime Ibrahim's, you know, been there. Um, we had a lot of support, alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah. Um, the support we've had after I published these couple of articles, I, you know, I never imagined. And I did this all. Ibrahim didn't even know. You know, I never told him over the phone because obviously the phone calls are recorded. I just not, I don't think it's a security issue. I just never mentioned it to him. And when I finally told him, I was like, look, you know, I made this petition and I did it like maybe 36 hours before our third bond bond hearing, right? This past November, I did not think I could get a hundred signatures. I was like, I'll be lucky if I get a hundred signatures in 36,000, excuse me, in 36 hours, we got 9,000 signatures, like subhanAllah. And this is from all over the world. Wow. All over the world. When I told Ibrahim, you know, he was just quiet. He was just, he was completely touched. He was humbled. He's just like, subhanAllah, you know, like uh, he makes dua, you know, when Ibrahim salam, left his wife and his child in the desert, you know, he made dua that Allah send, send your awliya, send people there to help my family, to protect my family. And that's exactly what's happening to my Ibrahim where people are coming and rallying with us and helping his family, supporting his family. SubhanAllah, I would not, I would not be where I am. I would not be able to speak. I would not be able to write if it wasn't for the people who have stood with us. Alhamdulillah. Sorry, I'm, I'm so emotional right yeah. now. I'm not even able to speak anymore because SubhanAllah, like you're right. Your story is so, it's your own, but in so many ways, it's all of us, you know? the amazing qualities in your husband, you know, we see that in our men, we see that in so many of the other men in our communities. And, you know, I remember our kids playing together a a few years ago when you had come to Chicago and, you know, I have a four year old and I have an Ibrahim and it's, it's just too, too close to home. It's, um, it's really not one of those things that you quote unquote hear about anymore. You know, it's, it's something that's really touching so many people's lives. And I think it's incredible, you know, with all that you're going through to be able to put it out there and to share it, it's really brave. And, 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 you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say something and this is usually we're really kind of self-critical of our community, but I agree with something Omama said earlier. If you had situations like this 20 years ago, um, the, the, wife of the the brother or the parents of the brother if it was someone single they were usually treated like pariahs in the community i mean no one wanted to show support most people would just avoid that family you know there would just be some chatter at the masjid you know that 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 person's husband got locked up or that person's son but i think as a community we realize the times we live in that's just not an option and i think again as a as someone who's a 
step, I'm close to it, but I'm still removed from it. I feel that the broader community has been very, very supportive of Ibrahim, of Omema. I'm not, you know, even directly involved, and people call me all the time saying, how can we help Ibrahim? Hey, we know you know Omema. What can we do? Uh, Is there something we can do? And so there's just, uh, and I I do the same thing Omema said. I direct them to the petition, or, you know, I'll tell them to stay in touch. If the brother's wife knows Omema, I'll say, hey, maybe message her directly, but um, I have seen that ever ever since this situation happened. There's a lot of uh, support. I think Obama will agree with that as well. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Like I said, when when we published, I I never I never imagined this this sort of response. And I was quiet for two years. I kept my mouth shut. I was you know I wanted to get media attention. I wanted people to learn about this, and I wanted people to to you know stand up and, and defend Ibrahim and, and other similar men like him. I just didn't know how. And I had one friend who was like, you have to write, you have to write, you have to write. And then I finally wrote something. And, you know, we, we sent it to local papers in Toledo. You know, Toledo has a small local newspaper. They didn't bite the bait, you know, and it was like, where do I go from here? And, you know, it was just knowing people and saying Muslim Matters, you know, Brown Girl Magazine, can can you all publish? Yeah. And the fact that they did, like, subhanAllah, like my, my, my social media blew up, my phone blew up, and I was like, whoa, I didn't, I don't know these people, but people are contacting me. Do you need help? Yeah. What can we do? And and at that that shout out, that's uh, the important thing, I think, also about kind of intersectionality and and, uh, alliances. Brown Girl Magazine, and I I personally know Atiya Hassan. She's she's not related to me, but she's fantastic. She does great work. I think their magazine, there's just so many outlets nowadays to support people like uh, Muslim Matters, like Brown Girl, like, you know, just so many outlets online and paper. Yeah. I mean, social media can can move mountains. That's that's what happened. You know, it's Panama. Has any national organization organization taken up this, um, like ACLU or? um, Um, I'm in contact with ACLU, but more on, um, you know, uh, we're discussing more the conditions of Ibrahim's detainment, you know, his diet, his lack of an imam, a chaplain, you know, he has he has no resources like that, um, you know, getting prayer rugs and getting food during Ramadan, you know, things like that with ACLU. Um, care, like I said, they, they do more like civil cases, civil rights, and this is a federal case. So this is kind of out of their jurisdiction. Yeah. Um, we've been working with MLFA. Um, you know, a lot of these organizations I contacted you know, since day one when Ibrahim was arrested. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, people only really responded after I published. And I think that's what media does. Yeah. Um, you know, HuffPost picked up our story. Um, I'm hoping, you know, some other, I have a, I have other friends who have contacts and that's just really how all of this is kind of snowballing is like somebody yeah. knows somebody who knows somebody who, who can help you publish or who can interview or something. Yeah. So just through that, you know, I'm getting more interviews. I'm, I'm writing more articles because people just want to hear the story. What's, what's, so is, there, the, is there a legal precedent on how long they can hold him for without a trial or any oh, type so of legal? You know what? Um, I, actually, on our Facebook page, I posted a story of a man who was detained for eight years. Eight he was years. detained for eight years, no charges, and then finally they're like, "Oh, hey, we remember you. You can go ahead and walk." No hmm. charges ever filed. He sat in jail for eight years. That's ridiculous. And that that is a that's an insane. That's a ridiculous violation. Was he mu- was he a Muslim person or no? He was he was African American. Oh wow. Oh. 
is African-American and which is, you know, which is an argument that I, I always, you know, bring up with other people in other interviews. It's, you know, it's either you're African-American and you get either shot on the, on the on site or you get a trial that's completely biased. Yeah. If you're Latino, you know, you're a drug dealer, you're a rapist, right? Somebody's already said that about them, um, you know, or, or, and my sister's in Arizona, you know, where it's a huge Mexican population. And she's like, I can drive down the road and no cop is going to pull over, pull me over and ask for my passport. But in Arizona, they'll ask for your passport, your green card for any, you know, somebody who looks Mexican and we'll deport them. Right. You see what's happening to the dreamers. Then you have Muslims, you know, this is what happens to us. You get travel bans, you know, you, you have the refugee crisis where people aren't, you know, countries aren't letting in refugees. Um, you see, you, you see all sorts of prejudices all over the world against all sorts of minorities. Um, we have the Native Americans. This is their land, man. We're like, you know, not us, but, you know, 200 years ago, there were immigrants who, who came and settled on their land. You know, how is that? How is that any different from the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? You come, you take their land, you kick them out. That's exactly what we did with the Native Americans. Um, you know, I mean, the prejudice is it's disgusting. It's um, yeah. It's something that has to change. Like, I just can't. Like it really, it doesn't even make me sad. It just, it's infuriating when I think about the future my kids are going to inherit. Where I'm like, I have to fix this now. And I think that's what's motivated me to finally speak about Ibrahim. Yeah, I think it's important that we develop these characteristics of justice in our children. I know a lot of parents listen to our show and, and I think that this needs to be really hammered home. And, and you can do it through, you know, the TV that they watch, you know, well, make sure they watch, you know, superhero type uh, cartoons and put it in context for them and not teach them like violence, but, you know, teach them uh, a to sense of justice people. and yeah, defend people, people who are being bullied at school. You can be that person who is a superhero, but not, you know, you don't have superpowers, but you can embody it's that Robin person. Hood. Yeah. yeah. It's so funny, like in American culture, if you actually look at the movies like Star Wars, right? It's the the evil one is actually the big empire mm -hmm. and the good guys are actually the rebels, the ones that are fighting against, right? Yeah. And trying to overcome the evil. And yet, um, you know, in, in real life, when it plays out, it's so different, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, no, we're, we're the empire is good. I was talking to my daughter just the other day and just telling her i'm like i'll be so disappointed in you not in your bad grades or anything or or any type of misbehavior you do at school but if you stand quiet while someone is being uh, bullied at school and and you're you're just an onlooker and you're not being someone who is an active participant in stopping what you're seeing you know this injustice that you're seeing I, I will see myself as a failure as a father that I didn't teach you that much, you know? And, and I think that if, if more parents, um, can adopt this into their parenting and, and just infuse justice into their children, just, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that'll just go so far, you know, in, in the awareness in our community, in our social awareness, in our, um, you know, are uh, just our everyday dealings as as human beings as well, you know? Oh, they absolutely need that supplemental education, especially when they go to public school and then they just hear that, you know, they don't even hear the proper history of Native Americans or how that land was taken over 
or any of the other minorities that were oppressed oh, yeah. or why African Americans, uh, p- communities are in, uh, you know, such disarray. They don't hear all the actual social dynamics that have happened or, you know, the systemic oppression of certain minorities. So they need us to guide them in that social justice, in that like recognition of, okay, these are systems that were put in place and this is how you disassemble those systems, right? Oh, yeah. The one Absolutely. person at a time, one yeah, mindset my- at a time. My kids go to public school and anytime they learn something like, you know, for example, when Thanksgiving rolled around, you know, and they're learning about the Native Americans, I had to debunk everything they learned at school. Oh, yeah. I was like, no, that's not how it happened. Yeah. Let me tell you how it happened. You know, and then I had meetings with teachers. I was like, what are you teaching these guys, these kids? And well, the kindergarten teacher, she like just graduated college. Okay. And I'm like, and she's like, well, you know, the Indians. And I was like, stop time out right there. I was like, they're not Indians, man. They're Native American. I'm Indian. Okay. <laughs> I'm from India. They're not Indian. Um, I was like, Columbus was, you know, you know, um, they celebrate Columbus Day still in, in some schools, you know, and, and our schools in Ohio do, do. And so I had to tell my kids, I was like, no, Christopher Columbus was a mass murderer. He committed genocide. He killed the Native Americans. Stop calling them Indians. Um, I had to sit down with the kids. I had to sit down with teachers because we have to teach them the truth about injustices. And it, you know, and it starts with schools and, you know, Irtaza's uh, wife, you know, she's pretty outspoken about this. She's a homeschooler. Oh, I should say she's, you know, unschooling. And, you know, to have these conversations with our children about injustices that, that are centuries old and yet are still happening now. Yeah. That's the only way we can change our kids' future is to teach them the truth now and not be afraid of it. You know, we, we, we create these bubbles and we create these um, safe havens for them. And it's just, it's, it's actually um, counterproductive. It's, 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 it's not really helping them. To them. They won't be able to recognize injustice when it's right in front of them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, the, you know, my son was on the school bus um, a couple of weeks ago and the teacher came to me and she's like, you know, they were on a field trip and a girl sitting behind him, a sixth grader, he's in fourth, uh, fifth, fourth grade, excuse me. Sixth grader asked him, are you Muslim? And he said, yes. And she goes, are you sure? <laughs> and the teacher's like, you know, this girl didn't mean to, she was not curious. You know, she meant something else by it. And my son didn't know how to react. And he felt like he felt her words. He felt the tone of her voice. He felt her sarcasm. He felt, you know, she's trying to whatever. antagonize him. Exactly. He started crying. He's a really soft kid. He starts crying. So the moment the teacher said, your son cried, I lost it. I was completely in tears because I know how, how soft and tender hearted my son is. And I told the teachers, I was like, look, had that child, that, that girl who's bullying him, said anything else, you know, how she said the capital T word, how she said something about terrorism or anything, I would not be crying. You know, I would have a whole nother set of emotions. And I told him, and the principal was really amazing. And she, she sat my son down and she's like, nobody has the right to make you feel inferior. Nobody has the right to make you feel confused about your identity. Nobody has the right to talk to you disrespectfully about your religion, about your ethnicity, about your nationality, anything. You never, ever, ever let anybody talk down to you and you speak up about it. And that's what we need to do. That's what, you know, what, that's what we can tell this audience is you see somebody hurting, you see somebody in need, you help them. And especially when it comes to legal cases, we get really, really, really afraid. We get really nervous. Some of us, you know, maybe rightfully so, but 
how long, you know, um, uh, we learned something in psychology back in college is that, you know, if you see a car accident, you assume the, per- the next person is going to call 911. And everybody assumes that, oh, the other lady is going to call 911. The other, other, other guy is going to call 911. And nobody ends up calling 911. That's what's happening in our communities. We're mm-hmm. like, oh, whatever, you know, this sister might be in need and she has like six kids and her husband is African-American and he's in prison, you know, whatever. She She's probably on welfare. She's okay. She's good to go. The bystander no, to yeah. You know, I mean, families need support and we need to rally together. That's why our Uma, you know, that's why we're weakening. We have to rally together we have to lock arms. Doesn't matter where you're from, what language you speak, what your ethnicity is, what your nationality is. Yeah. Well, props we're to this in uh, principal in small town Toledo, Ohio, you know, um, with the climate, what it is today uh, to be able to know that, like, you know, we have real people in public schools in, you know, in these positions of authority with our children that are going to reinforce these messages to them. That's, yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. You know what? Small town Toledo, a voted blue. I have to say that. <laughs> um, uh, secondly, I have never hummed it. And I have never faced any sort of, um, you know, uh, hate, hatred, any sort of, you know, um, bullying, any, any sort of negativity in that city. I saw this one guy who was following me weird at Costco and I was like, okay, he's, he keeps staring at me and he, he's, you know, his cart is really close. Either he's going to ram it right into me or I was getting very nervous. And then, you know, it was never go to Costco on a Saturday, but you know, four kids and he overtakes my cart and he stops dead in front of me. And I got so scared. And he turned around. He's like, ma'am, I just wanted to say you have a beautiful family. And I was so taken aback. I, you know, I fumbled my words and I mumbled a thank you. And he walked away and he left me in tears. And I looked for him all over that store and I couldn't find him. And I was like, subhanAllah, the world is good people are are the majority. Good people are the majority. And, and, you know, we can prevail over any sort of hatred or evil in this world. Umayma, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, um, I, I hope Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants this time that you gave to our podcast and, and blesses it with uh, something good that comes of it. And hopefully uh, uh, our listeners hop on to uh, the show notes and, and sign up to the petition. And if you guys have anything else you guys can, can do, I'm sure. Umayma, uh, is there a way to reach out to you? Um can our listeners contact you over some kind of social media at all? Um, we, we have a free Ibrahim page, okay. free Ibrahim now on Facebook, you know, just, just post their message on there. I have a lot of people who message on there. Um, um, I honestly did not know how to work a page on Facebook when I first, when I first um, created that page, but alhamdulillah, I've learned my way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we have a, a amazing response and, and, you know, you can totally contact me there. I'm the person, obviously the admin on that page. Cool. Um, yeah, uh, we'll make sure that all those links are in the show notes. So please be sure to go ahead and check it out. Um, again, Umayma, thank you so much for your time exactly. today. Thank you for the opportunity. I mean, thank you so much uh, to Irtaza, to, to Brother Imran, to Summer. Thank you so much. For questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach us at themadmumlooks at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, make sure to visit our website, www themadmomlooks.com and don't be shy to click away on that uh, donation button Uh, 
uh, for my co-host Samar Zehra and Ifta Hassan. My name is Sim. Assalamu alaikum.